You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Grab one of those Esther scripture journals if you didn't get one. On your way back to if you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of the hardback black Bibles on your way. We're going to be in the book of Esther today. And in those pew Bibles, that's on page 410. So feel free to grab one of those. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to keep that and bring that home with you and and have a copy of God's Word to use at your house. Esther chapter 1. We are beginning a new series today in Esther. And we've called this series Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. And so let me explain the title a little bit. So first, Ordinary People. Why did we choose that word? In part because Esther, even though she is the hero of the story in many ways, because of her courage and uh, her tenacity in that, should be celebrated. She's not a perfect example of how we live in exile, not like Daniel is. If you think about characters in the Bible who are in exile that often get used as examples, Esther and Daniel are often referred to. Daniel, though, he is an uncompromised Jew living in a foreign land. He continued with the disciplines of his Jewish heritage. He kept up with the prayers and the dietary laws. And in fact, those caused problems for him at several points in time. Today, he would be like the Christian who is remarkably disciplined, who fasts and prays and reads their Bible, who is kind, who is generous, and not out of legalism, but out of genuine worship. The person that you see and you may think to yourself, I could never be like that. The one whose example feels at times even unattainable. In this way, Daniel is an inspiring example for us, but may for you feel unrelatable. Esther is not like that. She is an imperfect and ordinary example. She hides her identity as a Jew at certain points. She does not keep the feasts or the practices of God's people. In many ways, she is more like the Babylonians than she is like the Jews in her day. Now, I'm not saying there are not things to celebrate here. She is clever, she is creative as she wins favor with the king, she is courageous and she is compelling as she advocates for her people. But if Daniel is an exceptional example of godliness in exile, Esther is a far more ordinary example. Now she is exceptional in her beauty and she is shrewd in her relationships, but she is an ordinary example of faithfulness in exile. And that's one of the reasons we chose Esther for this fall, because like Esther, we all live in exile. And many Christians, even here today, will feel ordinary and even at times compromised in their own morality and their own maturity, less like Daniel, more like Esther. Now, I'm not saying that we should not aspire to be like Daniel. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we will relate to Esther more often. And like Esther, we all have opportunities to be courageous, to trust in God's providence and his plan as we respond to his leading. Which brings us to the second half of our series title, Extraordinary God. Esther is a unique book within the Bible because it is the only book that does not mention God's name directly. However, a thoughtful reader of this story will see God's hand at work throughout the entire narrative. It is one of the most fascinating stories that has ever been written. What may seem random initially turns out to be the remarkable providence of God. There are narrative turns that we don't expect, people who intend to do evil and seem like they're going to be successful, all of a sudden find that their plans get turned back on them. 
There's increasing tension throughout the story. There's irony and role reversals. It's a wonderful story in and of itself. And we see something about God. Even though he is not mentioned directly, he shows up on every page, reveals himself to be the extraordinary God who is at work through life's circumstances. And so our aim throughout this series will be to help you see two things in particular. One, that God can work through ordinary people who are willing to trust him, to be obedient and courageous, even when the world seems like it is in chaos. And the second is that an extraordinary God is at work in the world, even if at times he seems silent and hidden. And so let's jump into the first chapter of Esther, where we are introduced to the setting of the narrative, the capital city of Susa, the home of the most powerful king in the known world at this time. And we will see how the most powerful human in the world is still weak and not in control when compared with our extraordinary God. And so if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, we, it'll be long, so brace yourselves. We're reading all of chapter 1, all the way through verse 22. Esther 1, 1 through 22 says this. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver and the mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Sathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. 
Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will, on, will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead, grab a seat, and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we see your hand at work. Even here in this story, where your name is not mentioned, we see the way you're at work, that you might save your people from evil intentions. And here today, God, we ask that you'd give us eyes to see, that you'd help us to see the wondrous things that you have here for us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In 1882, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche famously declared that God is dead. By that statement, he did not so much mean that atheism is true, but that the belief in the Christian God has become unbelievable. This is a quote from his own writings. Everything that was built upon this faith, propped up by it, grown into it, including the whole of our European morality, is destined for collapse. He was, in many ways, a prophetic philosopher, and it may have taken longer than he expected. It's been more than 130 years since he penned those words, God is dead, but we are now entering a phase in history that many have called a post-Christian West. John Dixon, an Australian cultural apologist and now professor at Wheaton College, was speaking on a panel this past week, and he presented statistics about the numerical decline of Christians in Australia and made a comparison to the decline of Christians in America. In 2021, a survey showed that for the first time in generations, less than half of Australians self-identify as Christians. Here's why that is relevant for us. Dixon argued that even though Australia is about 10 years behind America in most global trends, they are 10 years ahead of America in their progress to becoming a post-Christian nation. If you track the decline of those who identify as Christians in America, a very similar decline is taking place to the one that happened in Australia, but just about 10 years behind. And based on current statistics and trends, it is possible that within one to two decades, less than half of people in our country will self-identify as Christians. When we think about Nietzsche's statement, he may have been a little ahead of his time, but we have reached a cultural moment in America when we are now post 
Christian, which means that our nation is not just uninformed about Christianity as a pre-Christian nation, but as a culture, we have defined ourselves, at least in part, by the ways that we are distinct from and at times oppositional to Christianity. As Christians, I'm not going to tell us how we take back control, nor am I going to tell us how we hide from the world, but this series, we will learn how to live as people in exile, because I think that is the most helpful way to think about ourselves in a post-Christian West. Exile is one of the most common biblical images used for God's people in the world, especially in the New Testament, but recently in America, unless you were black or a minority Christian, many of us have not had the lived experience of being exiles. As people with privilege and influence, the world has felt a little too much like home, which is actually a very dangerous thing for those who follow Jesus. We are entering a time in American history where we will feel like exiles, and that doesn't need to cause us fear. It doesn't need to cause anxiety. For most of human history, God's people have lived as exiles, with little to no influence, as minorities in the world in which they inhabit. And that is one of the reasons why Esther is such a good book for us to study this fall, because Esther here is an exile. Her people were a minority. They they lived in this large nation that was ignorant of the God that they worshipped, the God who was and is and is to come. And even though many in our nation will celebrate that Nietzsche's prophetic prediction is becoming reality, the result of a world without God is one that is not good for human flourishing. It is a world of chaos that is bad for anyone who is not the king. And this introductory chapter here in Esther is meant to set the stage for the narrative to help us see that in this chaotic world that exists apart from the worship of God. And so our aim for us today is to paint a picture of what that world is like, because that is the world the Persian king Ahasuerus is trying to create. And so the message for our sermon today will be this, a world without God is bad for humanity. Thankfully, God is never absent, even if we try to erase him from the world. What Nietzsche got right is that in response to enlightenment movements and modern trends, the Western world has continued to move toward a post-Christian culture. And similar to Persia in the time of Esther, a world without God is a world gone mad. What Nietzsche got wrong is that we cannot actually kill God, because God is not just a product of our religious imaginations. He is the living and true God. And even when he seems silent, he is not. He is at work. And here's what we're going to do for the outline today. I'm going to talk about three different results of a world without God, and then help us see how God will confront each one of them throughout the narrative of Esther. And so the three results of a world without God are excess, inequity, and randomness. So we'll see in our text. Excess, inequity, and randomness. So first, excess. The story here begins by telling us about this Persian king named Ahasuerus, who is also known historically as Xerxes, the same Persian king who would eventually lose the famous battle of Thermopylae to King Leonidas and his Spartans. The story of Esther here takes place prior to his famous loss to the Greeks, and at this time, he has recently become the king. He has inherited a great measure of power and wealth from his father, and in order to display his power, he hosts a party. Actually, two parties. Together, they last 187 days. And in verse 3, we see that he invites his officials, his slaves, his army commanders, the nobles, and the governors, governors of his provinces 
The intent of this party is not made explicit, but we certainly see it in the description of the party. In verse 4, for example, it says that while hosting that first party, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And what he did here is not an uncommon practice. Many kings would do this early in the reign to consolidate power, to confirm their power, to bring everyone together and show them how rich and powerful they are so that in their next military campaign, they would support them. And here's the question we have to ask ourselves. In a world without God, where do we derive meaning and value and worth? If there is no God greater than us, then we must get it on our own. And we see how Ahasuerus is trying to do that. In the case of the Persian king, he desperately wants to show his power and his value through the extravagance of his feast. The author of Esther wants to help us see how hard the king is trying to show his might. Look at verse 6 and 7, for example. There were white cotton curtains, violet hangings, couches of gold and silver, drinks served in golden vessels, royal wine that was lavished upon the guests. Ahasuerus, in some ways for us, is completely unrelatable because we will never match his power and his wealth, and yet the baseline impulse of his heart can be very similar to ours at times. We can be more like him than we realize. When we forget that our meaning and our value is defined by God, which is an ever-present danger for Christians living in a post-Christian world, then we can try to get our meaning and our value from something else. And here's the question we can all ask ourselves. How do we try to do that? How do we try to get meaning and value in the world apart from God? Have you ever purchased something, worn something, or tried to accomplish something with the motivation to be seen as great by others? Perhaps even you told people about it on social media. You even included the hashtag humbled, soften the bragging just a little bit. But if not on social media, maybe it was in a conversation with others, with a strategically chosen comment at a strategically chosen moment to get the attention on you, to show how great you are. We try to be subtle about it. We don't want to be as openly overt about it as a is here, but we are all prone to draw attention to ourselves, to display whatever shows our glory, splendor, and the pomp of our greatness. In a world without God, then we must define meaning, value, and worth. And that is exhausting. And it is fleeting. We see that in the story here when King Ahasuerus interacts with Vashti. Meanwhile, as he's having his own party and festival, Queen Queen Vashti is having her own feast for women in the palace. And the king, wanting to show off even more, calls for her to come and show her beauty to everyone in verse 11. Now, the exact nature of what he intends to do with Vashti before the guest is not clear. What is clear is that he intended to make an object of her beauty for the benefit of the king's reputation. But she refuses in verse 12, sending word through the eunuchs that she would not come. And in that moment, it is not the king's unrivaled greatness that is on display, but his weakness, his inability to control other people or their response, in particular here, his queen. In a world without God, if we derive our value from our accomplishments and our greatness, it can be stripped from us in a moment. One comment, one failure, one comparison, 
one refusal. And throughout the story of Esther, what we are going to find is that the most powerful man in the known world is weaker than he thought. In fact, throughout this story, the king is a fairly passive character. It is actually one of his officials named Haman, who is the villain of the story, who uses the king to try and eradicate the Jewish people from the planet. But Haman also finds that his own strength is nothing when compared to the God of the universe. In a world without God, we must define our own worth and value. We must get it from wherever we can. Ahasuerus tries to get it through the excessive parties he threw, through expanding his kingdom, through the worship of his servants. But that is a foolish pursuit. In the end, our weakness will always be revealed. The excess of a world without God leads to the inequity of a world without God. And that is the second result we'll focus on today. The extravagance of the king's parties here, they come at the expense of the people in his nation. At this time in history, food insecurity was a reality for most people in the world, living under the constant threat of starvation. It was through their hard labor that the king was afforded the pleasures of leisure and excess. But God did not design the world to work that way. For some to live in excess while others are made an expense of. And that is made clear when God is giving Israel the expectations of the covenant at Mount Sinai. He wanted to make sure that they were a just people, equitable in their dealings, that they cared for the needs of their neighbor, ensuring that people were not starving among them. He instituted rules to make sure families were not destined for generational poverty including returning land to families after set periods of time and not collecting interest from one another. And one of the reasons that God grew so angry with his people at times throughout their history, the re- one of the reasons he sent them into exile is because they neglected these laws. The prophet Isaiah is one of the many prophets who calls God's people to return from their worship of idols, to return from their injustice. In the first chapter of Isaiah... He's outlining the wickedness of God's people, calling them out for the rejection of God and his commands. And in verses 16 and 17, he tells them what they should have been doing and what they should do now if they're willing to hear his correction. Verse 16, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. And then he outlines what it would mean to do good and cease to do evil. Four things, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Later in Isaiah, he is again bringing to light their oppression and their injustice. Isaiah 10, verses 1 through 2, he says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. Isaiah is warning those who are putting into law the type of decrees that create unjust environments. People who, verse 2, turn aside the needy from justice and rob the poor of my people from their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. The warning from Isaiah did not change things for Judah. They continued in their idolatry and in their injustice, so they were sent into exile which is where we are here at the beginning of Esther. They were the ones who lived like God did not care, as if he did not exist. So they lived with excess that led to inequity. And now they are the ones living under the injustice of the rule of another king. The excess of a world without God leads to the injustice of a world without God. 
And in the case of Ahasuerus, the victims of his excessive power were not just the people of his nation, as seen in the excess of his feasts, but also the queen, who was made into an object for her beauty. In a world without God, might makes right. This is the basic premise behind Darwinian evolutionary biology. If there is no God, then the survival of the fittest makes sense, and it will necessarily result in the inequity and oppression of those who are unable to exert enough power to do something about it. When Nietzsche wrote, God is dead, he was concerned that without the values and the morality of a God-influenced Christian West, we would move into unconstrained excess that would result in unjust environments. And the vision of a secular utopia in the West has attempted to hold on to the many values of equity and equality in the world, which they do not always realize they have inherited from Christianity, but the values of God's kingdom cannot be held together for very long without the God who is behind them. And we can already see the cracks and the fissures emerging, increased loneliness, anxiety, and depression, increasing income disparity, and the fracturing of society along the political religions. In the story of Esther, Queen Vashti and the citizens of Persia are not the ones at greatest risk of receiving the consequence of this type of inequity. The people who are shown as truly helpless in the story, objects of the wrath of those with power and privilege, are the Jewish people. They are the ones who experience the reality of the inequity. As we will see in the coming chapters, there is a very real threat made upon their lives. They are sentenced to death for no good reason and a date is set for their eradication. However, this is not a world without God. Even though he is not mentioned in the story, he will defend his people, and he will do so through a simple, unknown Jewish girl named Esther, who just happens to be living in the capital city, and whose uncle just happens to earn favor with the king. In a world without God, it is the survival of the fittest, but that is not the world we inhabit. And God is in the habit of defending the weak, of making a way where there seems to be no way. And this brings us to our third result of a world without God. In a world without God, things would be random, disconnected, and have no purpose. But with God, his providence is leading history toward a final day when all will be made right. One of the reasons that Esther was written as a book and recorded is to explain the origins of a festival among the Jewish people called Purim, which Esther institutes at the end of the book of Esther in Esther chapter 9, verse 32. After exile, as God's people celebrated this festival of Purim, the book of Esther was written to record the events that led to this annual celebration. And it was a celebration of the time that God saved his people through the unlikely hero of a simple Jewish girl named Esther. The word for the festival comes from the Persian word for casting lots or rolling dice. Dice in Persia were called pur. And that is significant to the story because in Esther chapter 3, Haman, who is the chief antagonist of the story, gets mad at the Jews because of a prominent Jewish man named Mordecai, who just happens to be Esther's uncle. And he defies Haman. So Haman, in his own insecurity, wants all the Jews to die. So he manipulates the king into sentencing them to death. And in Esther chapter 3, verse 7, Haman throws dice called pure to decide which day the Jews would be killed. The Jewish holiday would become 
known as Purim because it was the celebration of God undoing what was done through the casting of lots by Haman. It was a holiday that celebrates that with God, the world is not random, but purposeful and providential. In a world without God, events would be random, but with God, they have purpose. God's people would not only survive their exile, despite Haman's attempt to have them murdered, but they would return to their home, rebuild their temple, and begin to worship their God through holidays like Purim, celebrating that their God is a God of purpose. For generations, they would trust God's providence as they waited for him to fix what was broken in the world. And even though Esther here is a source of deliverance in exile, she is an insufficient mediator. God used her to save his people, but they would again find themselves in spiritual exile, continuing to reject God again and again, and under the rule of another foreign nation called Rome. They longed for God to fully fix what was broken, and they wondered if God would ever bring them to their true home. At the end of Exodus, or at the end of the Old Testament, God went silent again. For hundreds of years, God's people were born, lived, and died without the fulfillment of the promises. No new prophets to bring them God's word. From the end of the Old Testament to the birth of Jesus, 400 years went by. Generations came and went, and God's people waited in silence. And perhaps they wondered what some of us wonder still today. Where is God in the moments when he feels silent? Where is God in the narrative when his name is not mentioned? If a world without God is one of excess, excess that leads to inequity. If a world without God is one of randomness, then we long for a God of purpose, a God who will undo what is broken, who's going to defend the weak and show himself powerful and providential in the midst of life. I know that people in this room will feel this way today. The circumstances of your life may feel random, as you live in a world that feels like it's gone mad. And you wonder if God's going to show up and do something about what has gone wrong. I have these questions as well. This past week, I was convicted because there is something going on with some people in my life. And if I'm completely honest, I feel very helpless. I have doubts about whether God can or redeem the situation. And I've been crying out to God this week. Don't be silent. Help me see. Show up. And through the story of Esther, the story of God's people throughout the Bible, he's been calling me to trust in him, to trust in his providence. The hard part is the longing. When things don't seem to be going the way that we want, when we cannot see the purpose, when things feel random. After the story of Esther, After God's people return from exile, they are still waiting, wondering if God will fulfill his promises. And into the silence of a post-exilic people, Jesus comes into the world, not random, but purposeful, intentional, providential. In the same way that God appointed Esther through providential circumstances to redeem and liberate his people, she was but a shadow of what was to come. In the same way that God would use a simple Jewish girl to overpower the most powerful man in the world, God used a simple Jewish carpenter, born into obscurity and simplicity, 
to subtly undermine the most powerful nation in the world and to overcome the greatest enemy to God's people, not a nation or a king, but sin and Satan. And whenever we have doubts about God's purposeful providence, we can look to the cross of Christ where God proved his commitment to his promises and redeemed his people, not from exile in a foreign land, but from exile in the spiritual desert. He has proven his providence in Christ. A world without God is bad for humanity. Thankfully, God is never absent, and he is never truly silent. He has spoken through his Son, and he has declared over us all, he will fix what is broken. His patient and purposeful plan for the world will lead us to our true home. So as ordinary people living in a world gone mad, throughout this series, we will learn to trust in the purposeful plan of our extraordinary God. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.